Father, we thank you for this gift again of technology that we can be with each other in the spirit across the airwaves through mechanisms that most of us don't understand but so greatly appreciate. So I pray for every eyes and ears that are watching and listening and every heart that is leaning in how we thank you Jesus that you love them died on a cross for them to bring them to the city of heaven how you long today Lord Jesus Christ to enter into a new body that has never said yes to you until today would you make them new Father, especially for those who are sick and may not recover, may you send a voice of truth, announcing, proclaiming the gospel, that anyone can be saved if they believe in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, Lord, bring the sick to you. Lord, for those who care for the sick, we're grateful for them. And pray again, you'd protect them as you have been doing these men and women giving their lives for weeks now. Would you empty the hospitals, Lord, because the curve is flattening. Would you do that? Would you flatten the curve, oh God, by the sheer power of your hand in response to the prayers of your people to glorify yourself for mercy that you have spared us from sorrow. It's all mercy, undeserved, but that's what we ask. We need mercy. Would you end this pandemic? But only, Lord, as you increase the gratitude of those of us who've been saved, would you increase worship, fill the houses of the church around the world to overflowing as never before. May this result in revival as millions come into the kingdom, trusting Christ for the first time in their life. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Last Sunday afternoon, um, after the Easter service that many of us either were a part of or watched in some online somewhere, Greg Laurie, the pastor of Harvest Fellowship in Riverside, California, made an exceedingly large statement because of the large ministries that he has been involved with all of his, all of his life. I think I'm own. He said, I think more people may be hearing the gospel this Easter than any I can remember in my lifetime. This is a great moment for us as believers. Rejoice. I think it's right that he said, I think many leaders are observing the same thing, that this pandemic is providing an opportunity of a generation for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one thing that Christians do and should do is always look for unique opportunities, open doors through pandemics, natural disasters, and other crises, financial collapses, to share the gospel, the hope of eternity. Last week, I, I bet every preacher in America hit somewhere on the resurrection of Christ 40 days after he rose from the dead, he ascended to heaven, and before he left earth, he gave his disciples a command to look for those open doors. 
He said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever. But whoever does not believe will be condemned. Got a lot of stuff going on in just two verses. You have what to do with your life if you're a Christian. Go preach. Second thing it says in these verses, where to do it. If you're a believer, where do you preach? All the world. Three, what do you say when you go to all the world? You say the gospel. And number four, why say it? So that people will be saved. All of that is in those two concluding verses of Mark chapter 16. So when Jesus says, preach the gospel, uses the word euangelion, translated good news. So you have to ask, what does it mean that we are in possession now of good news? How is the gospel good news? Well, that is answered in verse 16. This is the good news of the gospel. Whoever believes is saved. So that's the first aspect of the gospel. You will be saved from guilt, saved from the penalty, eternal penalty of your sin, if you believe, and obviously this is a belief in Christ because Jesus is the one speaking here, but just to validate that, we'll go a little off, and Ephesians chapter 2 just lets us know it is Christ that's the basis of this salvation. You were dead in your transgressions and sins, which you used to live, When you followed the world, we were deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God made us alive. There's your answer. Back to Mark 16, who saves us? We were made alive with Christ, and it is by grace you have been saved. So again, verification, Jesus is the one who saves. So when you look at Mark chapter 16, If you believe you're saved, you could just picture yourself on a runaway train down a mountain, 60, 70 miles an hour, increasing in speed. Five miles ahead is a a sharp turn on the railroad track, a thousand miles above the canyon floor, and you don't have a shot of making it off that train alive. You are condemned. You are doomed. And a helicopter is traveling at the same rate of of the train, lowers a rope ladder down to the front of the train. You climb on top and you grab that rope ladder and you are saved before the train crashes. This is the picture of humanity. On a train headed to damnation, Jesus offers his life, his hand, his blood as a rope ladder to be saved. So that's what the gospel is. You say, what's the gospel? It is the offer, the offer by Jesus Christ to be saved from impending doom. The gospel is not. You can have a relationship with God so that your bad days become better days. You have a relationship with God so your business is blessed. That's not the gospel. God does these things in the lives of believers, but the fundamental 
aspect of the gospel which Jesus made clear here in Mark 16. The New Testament makes clear. He has come to save you from your guilt and eternal punishment. In Mark 16, 16, we sort of see another aspect of the gospel. Sort of the second part of the way Jesus says it. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. That's good news. Then the second part is the negative way of saying good news. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. You say, well, how could that, whoever does not believe will be condemned. How is that good news? It's good news because Jesus knows condemnation comes to those who do not take hold of the rope ladder of the cross on that runaway train of their sin and guilt. And so he loves us enough to warn us. So it's good news in the second half of Mark 16 because it comes from a heart of love. That's what love does. Love warns. So it's good news because we have a Savior who warns us. Now when you read verse 16, this is like right in the middle of Easter. And this is once again Jesus coming with a very heavy statement and you say, why In the middle of the Easter season, would he be so heavy that says, if you do not believe in me, you will be condemned. It's so heavy, it almost makes you uncomfortable. Whoever does not believe in me, I'll condemn them. This is precisely why he said it. It's supposed to be that heavy. The good news is that we're saved from the bad news. And it's impossible to love good news without knowing bad news. Bad news is what makes you comprehend and love good news. Right now, bad news in our culture is you can't go to a restaurant, can't go to a civic center to hear music, can't go to a stadium to watch a ball game, can't go to a church to corporately worship. It's all bad. One day, stadiums are open again, civic centers are open, we're going to be whining and dining at restaurants and singing together hallelujahs to Christ in this building. And that day, you will appreciate good news more than ever because now you know what bad news is. That's why you have the contrast of bad news and good news in Mark 15 and 16. They're really one coin, two sides of the same coin. I want to save you. And I don't want to condemn you. I want to save you. I don't want to condemn you. Anyone who loves the gospel will love and applaud God for being saved from his condemnation. The gospel is one of our favorite words at Hope Point. And we have written, um, and I thought this would be a wonderful opportunity because I may have your mind more focused than I would if you were here, because we say this all the time, that these books are available, a little red book, euangelion, the Greek word for gospel, good news, and we make them available to guests every single week because we say this, no matter what's being said on stage or sung that week, we want to make sure that everybody in this place has access to hear the gospel. So we wrote that book, euangelion, and we want you to start using it more than ever in this wonderful time of opportunity. You can 
you could mail these to somebody you could, to, that you've never had a relationship, a conversation with about the Lord. You could mail it to a coworker or family member, and when you give it to them, you could say, "God is doing amazing things in my life at my church." Our, our, our churches developed this very brief synopsis of the Bible. We think it will encourage you. And you give them that. You should be doing that. You should be giving this book away. And it is so very brief. Here's a little bit of what it looks like inside. It's got eight sections. Like, and there's just samples of them. Like the beginning of all things. That's, how, that's all it is. That, and then it goes to the fall. How we got messed up and why there are viruses in the country and the world now. And then the liberation that Jesus Christ bought with his blood from the, all the crushing things of this world and the renewal that's come when he will make all things new in a new heaven and a new earth. This is the way we say the gospel around here. God created, man rebelled, earth was penalized, Christ rescued, the Spirit came, and the earth will be renewed. This is the gospel. And everything else is a false gospel. This is the gospel. This is what God wants to do in your life. And we should not be surprised that the countries around the world are loaded with the false gospel. Even the Apostle Paul, the best of the best at preaching the gospel, saw a false gospel so early on creep into the churches of Galatia that he said to them in chapter 1 of that book, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting the true gospel for another gospel. This is the gospel. And this is what churches are called to preach. Another way that you could be a witness during this time of unbelievable global opportunity is you can go to drawthefish.org. It's simply the little red book that we read to beautiful music and drone scenes from around the world to help you sort of stay focused while the truths of the little red book are being read. But you could go on drawthefish.org and you could share it on your Facebook or any other your social media platforms. And you should. And at the end of drawthefish.org, you can, there's free resources. Chasing What Matters is on that website for free. It's just all sorts of help. You know, you probably have watched us at Hope Point over the past five weeks. We've tried so far to, <clears throat> to put a new video, middle of the week, for you, <laughs> not to entertain you, but to provide you with a resource that you could share with the world that's lost. And we've tried every week, and every week in the video we talk about the vulnerability of human life and uh, uh, the, our condition of sin that needs a Savior. And sometimes there are longer videos, sometimes they're, they're pretty short. But at the end we've offered these sinners prayers because we're not putting them out there for people just to watch them and like them. We put them out there for, for you to share them. Because people are lost. They will be condemned. See, this is the gospel. If you don't believe in Christ, you'll be condemned. So we're doing all things. We're doing everything we can to redeem this opportunity. All because of the words of Jesus Christ in Mark 16. 
Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe is condemned. Hell! This is, we're not playing games. We're just, we work really hard to give you tools so that by all means, some might be saved from hell. This is the gospel. Jesus Christ came that will not be condemned. That is the gospel. John Piper says, Christians care about all suffering. We do. Everything related to this virus and the economy, and all, we care about all suffering. But they especially care about eternal suffering. If they don't, they either have a defective heart or a flameless hell. This is the gospel. Jesus Christ came to save people from a real hell. They're, they're dying all the time. Do you remember four weeks ago I gave you a statistic? I said in, in that sermon on Sunday morning, I said the day before a thousand people had died of COVID-19. Then that Sunday during the night I said another thousand. So that Sunday morning, I said 2,000 people had died. That was four weeks ago. Last night, I checked, and now 40,000 people have died. So in the four weeks that I've been preaching on this, 38,000 new people have died and stood before the Lord, either to be welcomed or condemned. We should live with an unbelievable sense of urgency in this time of global pandemic. This is the opportunity of a lifetime to share the gospel. Are you sharing the gospel? We are like Esther, Queen Esther. Her uncle says, God has raised you up for such a time as this. Joseph made vice president of Egypt. He said, I have been sent here for the saving of lives. You ought to regard yourself like now as an Esther, as a Joseph. I am a preacher of the gospel, a proclaimer of the gospel. In 1854, a cholera pandemic broke out in London, very near Charles Spurgeon's neighborhood. He had only been there a year. Just like to share some quotes with you of how he handled the opportunity in the middle of a pandemic. I had scarcely been in London 12 months. The neighborhood in which I labored was visited by Asiatic cholera. And my congregation suffered from its inroads. Family after family summoned me to the bedside of the smitten. And almost every day I was called to visit the grave. <clears throat> so I went home, rest, then he was called back. For this particular guy, I loved this thing in his diary. I went home and was soon called away again, this time to see a young woman. She was also in the last extremity, but it was a fair, fair sight. In other words, he was going to visit her, but she was doing well, though dying. Because she knew the gospel, and in her dying, was proclaiming the gospel. Because that's what you do in pandemic. Listen to how he wrote about her. She was singing. 
Though she knew she was dying and she was talking to those round about her, telling her brothers and sisters to follow her to heaven, bidding goodbye to her father, and all the while smiling as if it were her wedding day. She was happy and blessed. Oh, how I hope that you are using your life for such a time as this, for the saving of lives, so that people, because they know you, will die happy and blessed because it's possible through Jesus Christ to die that way. Only the gospel can do this. Interestingly, in 1866, another pandemic of cholera broke out in London. This time Spurgeon began to pour into pastors, sending them out of what they should say as they visited. Now is the time for all of you who love souls, when men and women are more anxious than normal. This is a little paraphrase. The old English was a bit much, so a little paraphrase on my part. Second line, you have God's medicine that can heal their hearts, so when their wounds bring pain to them, pour in the healing ointment of Christ. You know of him who died to save. Tell them of him. Lift high the cross before their eyes. Tell them that God became man, that man might be lifted to God. Tell them of Calvary and its groans and cries and its sweat of blood. Tell them of Jesus hanging on the cross to save sinners. Tell them that. In a time of pandemic, Spurgeon was unashamed of the gospel. So many church attenders even now, are ashamed of the true gospel. They do not consider the most important thing that God has ever done in their life is to send Jesus to be nailed to a cross and to absorb their guilt into his crucified body. They don't see that as the gospel. They don't talk in terms of that as the primary thing that God has done for human history. I pray that God will help all of us, you and me, all who are listening, to return to a true trust in the hope and power of the gospel, preaching Christ and Him crucified. That's the power of the gospel. Romans 1. So please, whenever we share gospel tools with you on our website, please share them. Don't like them. Jesus Christ has not come to be liked. He came to be shared. Please share. Share the gospel. Announce the gospel. Don't just like the gospel. It takes a lot of courage the first time you take a leap on social media and say something for Jesus. It, it's, it's, I mean, how in the world are your, is your friends based that you've been working on the develop, developing all these, how they're going to react? Like it? Not surprise them, annoy them, anger them. They block you, drop you. So many people consider, should I take a risk for Christ and say something about him on social media? And a lot of people say he's really not worth the risk. Do you have to share the stuff that we're producing? 
Nope, absolutely not. Did you just find something that's worth sharing, that has gospel hope, gospel transformation, gospel peace? You find something that's worth sharing in the middle of this pandemic. Everything we produce, we hold on to tight, uh, very, very loosely. I mean, it's imperfect. It may not be good for you. We hold on to it loosely, but you got to hold on to something tightly. you got to find something that you can share at your workplace and with your family in this unparalleled time of opportunity. Earlier this week, I was talking with a, a Hope Point businessman. He used to go here, doesn't anymore because work took him to a new city. But I've been following him on Facebook, and almost every day he posts a very bold and beautiful verse from the Scripture. And so I asked him, I said, what, what has gotten into you? He said, four weeks ago, you said on the Internet, and we watch you every Sunday, he said, you said this is the opportunity of a generation. So I'm posting Scripture every day. And he's never done it. He's never done it. And then we've had two more hope pointers, one that lives here, one that doesn't love these people so much. They have both filmed their testimonies uh, and recorded their testimonies during this time of pandemic and opportunity. They recorded a three- or four-minute testimony, really different testimonies, which I love because Jesus works so differently in our lives. But Laura Luke, Dr. Luke down in Florida, and Patrick Martin works with crew here and college students, and they use this hashtag during the Easter season um, because many people were doing it from the West Coast to the East. Uh, you post your video and the hashtag, Jesus changed my life, and you try to tell people in the video also where you worship so they'll tune in and get more of the Lord's help every week. But these are good. You can go to Facebook and look at these two wonderful testimonies. You can sort of figure out how do I do a testimony, how do I tell my story of what Jesus has done in my life. But sharing the gospel is what every church is called to do. Sharing the gospel is what every Christian is called to do. That's what Jesus said. Go into all the world. Look at that. And preach the gospel to all creatures. This is what we do. This is the heartbeat of every New Testament church. I am um, had a blast this week checking in with our, our global partners because this church is all about all the world. We want to be all the world. want to be more all the world. So <clears throat> I first called our orphanage director in Chennai. How are you doing? He said, well, we're on complete lockdown. We can't leave the campus. He cares for 45 children that live there. How about that? Feeding 45 children every day. Can't leave his little eighth of a mile driveway to go out to the main road, barricade there. So they have rice enough for several weeks, but you can't get meat, can't get vegetables. And when I, I saw Joseph on my WhatsApp um, you know, video feed, I said, bro, you, look, you don't look great. He said, don't worry about me, Pastor. He said, I've been in a three-day fast. Our campus is fasting for the nation of India to come to Christ during this time of pandemic. He said, every night from 7 to 8.30, all 45 children gather and we pray for India. Then five hours um, uh, <clears throat> east of the, west of there in Bangalore, I checked in with our church planner there. He was not there. He was out <clears throat> two and a half hours away with ministry, but his, his two college-age kids were there. I was asking them, what are they doing during the pandemic? He says, we're doing online Bible studies. 
every Wednesday and Saturday. This is in a totally Hindu culture, and they have 25 kids, 25 kids from their village that are daring to investigate Christ during this time of pandemic. Earlier this week, I um, was in, um, or Thursday of this week, I was in Greenville filming uh, just a, a little spot for a Set Free Alliance, the the, the wonderful ministry that we partner with, they drill water wells in Africa and India. They rescue children from child slavery from the rock quarries in India. They plant churches and they're very evangelistic. Every well they drill, they combine it with a showing of the Jesus film. And so they're up to, they care for 10,000 children now a, a day to feed that they have rescued from rock quarries. And uh, yet they're also on lockdown. So the pastors, well, these children live in many, many churches in five different states in India and many, many different facilities and uh, just, just everywhere they could put these children. But the pastors will sneak out at night to go buy food off the black market uh, to feed the orphans in their, in their care. And the pastors sneak out at night to go preach the gospel in the villages. This is what it means to be possessed with a global passion to go to all the world. I want you to, um, well, one of the things I loved about when I was talking to the director, Roland Bergeron of Set Free, he said one of the greatest uh, chances, opportunities to share the gospel he got, the pastors are saying that the women, which primarily 70% of all churches in India are composed of women, he said, but the women are elated about the, shock, uh, the, the, uh, the lockdown because their, woman, their, their, their husbands cannot go to work. And they stay home, and she said, and they have to listen to us talk about Christ all day long. This is what Jesus is called to do. In the middle of a pandemic, you preach the gospel. You preach the gospel. I want to introduce you to somebody sort of new to my life. Uh, his name is Paul Johnson. He's the, let me just say this phrase first. We serve a global Jesus, and therefore we must have a global Witness. That's what uh, Mark 16, 16 is all about. Go into all the world. We serve a global Jesus. So I want to introduce you to Paul Johnson. In uh, 2019, July of 2019, he was appointed professor of missions in global Christianity at Gordon-Conwell Seminary. In order for you to appreciate his little six-minute speech he makes in, the, um, in his inauguration ceremony, I'll just give you some background He's been all over the world, I think at 80 different countries, and lived in some, has gone some just for research. But when he was 21 years old, he joined YWAM, Youth with a Mission. And they sent him um, to first to Thailand and then to, and, and then to Cambodia. At this particular time, it was sort of at the end of the cruel regime of the Camarouge. From 1975 to 1979, the Khmer Rouge ruled Cambodia. You remember their leader was named Pol Pot. Under his satanic cruelty, two million people, two million Cambodians lost their lives. Millions, hundreds of thousands fled. And so Paul Johnson was assigned one of the refugee camps in, in Cambodia where people were flying to, uh, fleeing to. And so he's telling the story at his inauguration at Gordon-Conwell, but he's taking you all the way back 
to that moment in life when he was 21 when God gave him a global passion for a global Jesus. And what I'd like to do now is briefly to tell you the story of how I encountered the global Jesus who then led me into a lifetime of research on the global Christian family. Late one morning in April of 1980, I went out to the road in rural Thailand to catch a ride to the world's largest refugee camp, Khaui Dung, which means Black Mountain in English. Cambodians had fled across the border as the genocide came to a close. This camp grew from 30,000 when I arrived at Christmas in 1979 to 135,000 by the time I left in June 1980. I was late that morning because I'd been quite sick and was just returning to my job for the first time in several days. I was normally the driver, but I had to hitchhike that day because I left late. Shortly after I hopped on the back of the motorcycle, which was a common way to get to the camp, I realized I had made two mistakes. First, the young woman I was desperately clutching onto drove with total abandon. <laughs> Up until that time in my life, I had never held a woman so tightly. <laughs> we arrived safely at the camp, and my Cambodian co-workers were there, as I expected, lined up to meet me. They smiled sheepishly as I clumsily fell off of the motorbike. I didn't even try to explain. <laughs> At lunch, I showed up to teach English to my 30 students. My, my students were fresh from the trauma of the genocide. One of them was a 15-year-old 15, a boy who had witnessed the, ma the massacre of his mother, his father. <laughs> and all of his brothers and sisters. He, he was the only one who survived. Most of the time, he stared blankly ahead and found it difficult to speak. How could the Khmer Rouge commit such an atrocity? John Paul Sartre died in Paris that same week. He wrote, Every existing thing is born without reason, prolongs itself out of weakness, and dies by chance. That's another perspective on human destiny. Pol Pot and his cohorts, many of whom were educated in France and received military training from the French Communist Party, boasted that they were influenced by Sartre's doctrine of necessary violence. So there was a direct connection between Western philosophy and Asian genocide. Back in my classroom in Thailand, I normally used a variety of strategies to teach English. I inherited two English classes that would help my students get a better future when they were later relocated. Of course, one of my key Cambodian leaders spoke seven languages. All I could say in Khmer was Atlo, which means not good, and Chopilan, which means get off the truck because I was the driver. <laughs> that day, Partly because of my sickness, I decided to do something different. I told the gospel story from Genesis to Revelation in 45 minutes with a translator. I had been trained by Youth with a Mission on how to share the good news, but it was my Sunday school upbringing in a Lutheran church 
in Minneapolis that gave me the depth to do this with little or no preparation. One of the stories I decided to tell was of Jesus sleeping on a boat during a storm. Mark 4 tells us that he calmed the wind and the waves. I'll never forget that after finishing the story, there was a long silence, and one of my students stood up and said in perfect English, who is that man that even the wind and the waves obey him? Sorry, when I came to Thailand, I thought I was bringing Jesus with me, but I, as I stared out at that classroom, I realized he was already there. That day, I was privileged to share the good news, and all 30 of my students said they wanted to follow this man who even the wind and the waves obey. Later, I shared the good news with 26 students in my other class. At the end of the week, I had 56 new believers to introduce to the Cambodian pastors who had planted a church in that refugee camp. This is what changed my own life. Jesus is a global savior, and he was already there in what I perceived as the ends of the earth. From that moment on, I saw myself primarily as a member of a global family, and I've had the privilege of a lifetime of research on the presence of Jesus among all the nations. It's why I'm here today. A few years after my time in the refugee camp, I received a letter from the 15-year-old boy I mentioned. He had been resettled in Portland, Oregon, and was excitedly telling me that he was pastoring two churches. His life had been turned around that day in April of 1980. He was discipled at Kawidang, then sent to another camp where he learned how to share from the scriptures. Despite the unimaginable hardships of his young life, healing had begun and joy seeped in and gave him a reason to live. He and I both found our destiny in that camp. So here is Jean-Paul Sartre, the philosopher who introduced, who influenced Pol Pot and the Camarouge. This was the philosophy they studied powerful when we think about how thoughts affect violence or thoughts lead to salvation. Be careful what you say. Think hard how you can tell people hope of Christ. Because this is the world's philosophy by Jean-Paul Sartre. Every existing, every existing thing is born without wisdom prolongs itself out of weakness and dies by chance. That's a hopeless philosophy shared by most in the world. Sartre was also the one who pushed the philosophy of domination by violence. If you don't think that kind of thinking still influences behavior, all you have to do is look at what the governor of Michigan did this week. Banned elective surgeries, hip replacements, shoulder replacements, but made sure she kept open the abortion clinics. Domination by violence. Jean-Paul Sartre is still active in his influence today. So what a hopeless philosophy he 
spewed out to many in his lifetime. And I want to close today very briefly with our counter to that by reminding you of the, of the message that two women heard. I'll be done in two minutes. Two women heard they were walking in the morning darkness, no foreseeable hope. They had spices in their hand, and they were going to anoint the dead body of Jesus Christ. One of the greatest proofs of the resurrection is their coming to the tomb with no expectation of a risen Savior. No one thought he would be alive. They came to grieve and to honor the body that had been so massacred on the cross. They were further grieved because on the way they realized they could not get into the tomb with their spices to anoint that body because a large stone was in the way. We enter Mark 16. When they looked up, they saw the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. We're told elsewhere that this was an angel. It's fitting that an angel should be at the resurrection. An angel was there at his birth. Look how calm he is sitting in that tomb. He's calm because he lives with God and knows that God is in control and God is working all things for good. So he's calm. And look at this sweet message to these women. Don't be afraid. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. How tender. Don't be afraid. And then the threefold description of Jesus Christ. A reminder of where God chose to live when he came to earth for those 33 years. In Nazareth, a no nothing place kind of village. Disrespected village for a disrespected Savior, Jesus the Nazarene. Then the angel says, this Jesus who was crucified as a reminder that his death was the worst evil ever inflicted upon a man and taken by God to perform the greatest glory ever offered for mankind. Jesus who was crucified, and finally, the greatest words in the history of the world. He is risen. He's not here because he doesn't belong with death anymore. Death cannot hold him. He is not here. And his final message to those women was, go tell the disciples and Peter. These are the men that had failed him. This is the man who had publicly denied him. So somewhere out in Jerusalem was a heartbroken Peter thinking that all hope was lost. He had gone too far. His failure was too much. His sin was too great. And the message from God through the angel to those women on the way to Peter is, Peter, I'm coming for you. I'm going to reinstate you into my service You're going to be the leader of the early church of Jerusalem. I will make all things new. I am alive, and therefore hope is alive. No matter what you've done, Peter, no matter what you've done, Richard, Hunter, Brian, Lisa, 
Dan, Dean, or any of you who are listening, no matter what you've done, hope is alive because Jesus Christ is alive. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have a message to combat gross philosophies, and death-producing worldviews. We thank you for that 15-year-old boy in that refugee camp who heard of a Christ who can control oceans, who heard of a Christ who gave his body to a cross. Lord, I pray that we would be proud of Jesus. We'd be confident in a Savior who would do such a thing, would calm nature and not choose to use his power to stop Roman guards from nailing him to a cross. Because he knew he had the power to lay his life down. He had the power to raise his life up from the dead. Father, we need a new vision of Jesus a new love, a new passion, a new burning in our hearts to save those who are perishing by simply telling them of his salvation. Father, would you infuse our hearts with a new energy, a new focus, a new love, a new longing, a new song of Mark 16, 16. Whoever believes will be saved. Create urgency. Make us to be foolish like the Apostle Paul. Foolish enough to believe in Christ crucified and Christ risen. Jesus, we pray in the midst of the pandemic for a bold church and for ready ears, soft hearts, and transformed lives. In Christ's name I pray, amen.